All right. Good morning, guys. Welcome. So we are continuing our series through the Gospel of John, and we find Jesus in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus has just been hearing about the signs that Jesus has been doing. You remember last week, we saw two particular signs that Jesus did. One was turning the water into wine, and the other one was cleansing the temple. And my guess is what Nicodemus is thinking is, this guy is way different than any religious ruler or teacher that I have ever seen before. And what it starts to do in Nicodemus is make him question himself. Because see, it's always been assumed, because Nicodemus is a teacher in Israel, that he's the real deal, that he's the real thing. But he's perceptive enough to realize, maybe I'm not. And I think this is a pertinent passage for us to be in, in a room like this. And that's because I think in our culture, it's common for there to be people who say that they're Christians, maybe even genuinely believe that they are Christians because of their background. So it's common for me to hear somebody say, well, I grew up in a Christian family. I went to a Christian school. I go to a Christian school now. I go to church, I read the Bible, therefore, I'm a Christian. And Jesus exposes the reality that Christianity actually has nothing to do with those things. Christianity is a free gift from above, from God. And so we're going to look at that reality, and my hope is that some Christians get saved today. Right? Salvation is a free gift. So the first thing we see in the text is that salvation is being born again, not born into. Look with me at verses 7 through 12. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony." If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So again, Jesus is having a conversation with this man named Nicodemus, who is a religious elite. Jesus even responds to him, or refers to him as the teacher of Israel. He is a member of the Sanhedrin, which is like the ruling body of religious figures in that day. And Jesus is having a conversation with him, just Christianity 101, or in Nicodemus' case, Judaism 101. 
And he lays out for him that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And earlier on in the text, Nicodemus is super confused by this. He's like, wait, do I need to enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? And Jesus is like, no, definitely not. That's not what I'm talking about. But he's saying to him, basically, these are the basics. And he's challenging this basic assumption that Nicodemus has, which is why his mind is spinning and he keeps asking all of these questions. The basic assumption that Nicodemus has is that the way to be Jewish is to be born into it. So he believes that he was born the right race, in the right place, with the right religion, and all he had to do was to keep himself a Jew in good standing by obeying the law. He thought he had already been born into it, and so he thought he was in because of his pedigree, and everybody else was out because of their pedigree. And so you can imagine how alarming this was for Jesus to say, no, you need a new kind of birth. Your first birth, your upbringing, your culture is not what gets you in to the kingdom of God. It is about being born again. And naturally, Nicodemus is like, okay, how does this work? Like, how can this happen? His assumption was you earn your way into salvation by sort of living up to your religious pedigree. So how do you get in on being born again? And Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it wishes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Huh? And so you can see Nicodemus's mind racing, and it's like, well, wait a second. The wind blows wherever it wishes. No one knows where it comes from, where it goes. You just hear its sound. You see the effects of it. But we don't control the wind. We don't earn the wind. We don't fully understand the wind. The wind is outside of our control. And Jesus is saying that salvation is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God, unearned by any person. Have you ever thought about this before? This often happens. Two friends will go to church together, neither of whom is a Christian. They're sitting in a room like this. The word of God is open, the word of God is preached. One friend goes home, life completely changed. Eyes open by the word of God. They see Jesus as beautiful. They bow their knee to him. They accept the grace of God and the trajectory of their life is forever changed. 
the other friend goes home. In one ear, out the other. Same gospel message preached. They don't believe it. They don't want to believe it. They may even ridicule it and think that people in a room like this are crazy. Jesus explains that the difference between those two people is not that one earned it and the other didn't, but that it is owing to the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. The only reason that anyone in this room is saved is purely by the grace of God. It is not something that we can merit or earn in any way. And Jesus challenges this assumption that many of us have had that we have always been Christians. May I say to you that if you walked in with that perspective, somebody were to ask you the question and you genuinely answer it, when did you become a Christian? And you say, I've always been a Christian. Let me say to you, you don't understand what Christianity is. Christianity is heart change by the Spirit, like the wind blowing. Let me give you an analogy to maybe explain what you've actually been doing. Okay? Imagine that you're on a sailboat, but you think that the sailboat is a rowboat. And so you have just been rowing like absolute crazy. Rowing, 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 rowing. And there's an experienced sailor on the boat who's just watching you sweat, watching you go absolutely crazy. And you're just like, why don't you help me grab one of the row? Oars, oars. Why did I say row? Oars. <laughs> and, 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 and he's like, no, 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 no. And just watches you for a little while. And then says to you, hey, you know, this isn't a rowboat. It's a sailboat. And like, pulls that cord. I don't know anything about sailing, so I'm, I'm going to expose that right now. But the sail comes up, all right? And, and all of a sudden, you're like looking at that person like, Okay, but there's not much wind at that point, okay? And, and you're looking at that person like, what are you doing? Like, what I was doing was much more efficient. At least I was actually accomplishing something. And you're, so you're sitting in the middle of the lake, and this guy's convinced you to stop rowing the boat, and you're sitting in the middle of the lake. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And all of a sudden, not because of anything that you did, the wind picks up. Boom! The boat starts flying. And all of a sudden, you come to realize it's a sailboat. The wind makes it go. Jesus is having this conversation with the religious person in the room. And he's saying, maybe you're so tired and you've been working so hard because you've thought that Christianity was something that 
you did, not something that God does. Maybe you're trying to earn a free gift, and here's the action step for you. Cross out all your action steps. Throw up your sail. And say to God, none of my rowing has gotten me anywhere. I am still as lost as I've ever been. I am still as broken as I've ever been. Nothing I've ever done has gotten me anywhere. And I look at genuine Christianity as Nicodemus looked at Jesus. I look at genuine Christianity and I know deep down inside I don't have what they have, but I want to have what they have. And Jesus says to Nicodemus and to us, that's my specialty. When? I can make you come alive. Okay, so salvation is being born again, not being born into. The second thing we see in the text is that salvation is for the world, not just a tribe. Look with me at verses 13 through 18. No one has ever ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay, now, when we read through this passage, many of us, even who don't have that much familiarity with the Bible, read through that and we're like, I know that verse. But here's what you probably don't think about John 3.16, is that to its original hearer, which was Nicodemus, this verse would have been totally offensive. Here's why. Nicodemus lived in occupied territory. He was a Jew. He lived in a Roman province. He lived in a region that had been taken over through basically ancient colonialism. And so if there was a group of people that were hated, by the Jews. It was the Romans. And Nicodemus and his followers thought that when the Messiah came, he was going to take care of the Roman problem. So when they thought about the kingdom of God, they thought conquering king. They thought he's coming with a sword and he is going to wipe out our enemies whom we hate. And Jesus inserts this sentence into Nicodemus' worldview. God so loved the world. Nicodemus' understanding was God so loved the Jews. 
Jesus is saying, God so loved the Romans that he sent me, not to condemn them, but in order that they might be saved through me. Jesus then takes the offense to the next level, and he applies Numbers 21 to the world situation. So again, Nicodemus is a teacher in Israel. So Jesus says, let's mentally flip back in our Old Testaments to the book of Numbers. And in Numbers, there's this odd story. The Israelites are in the wilderness. They're being super disobedient to God. And so God sends these venomous snakes to bite them for their disobedience. And so all of these Israelites have been bitten as a consequence of their sin, and without rescue, they are going to die. And so God tells Moses to put a bronze serpent onto a pole. And then Moses is to go out to announce to all the people of Israel that whoever looks at the bronze serpent on the pole will be saved. But if you don't look at the bronze serpent, then you'll be lost. You'll be writhing in pain, and then you'll die from the venomous snake bite. Look at the serpent, live. Don't look, you die. And so the Israelites have been taught for years, if you had been bitten by one of these serpents, then you would look at the serpent and live, but they had always applied this text ethnocentrically. Their understanding had always been only Jews had an opportunity to look at the serpent and live. And Jesus is saying the ultimate serpent is for everyone. The ultimate solution to sin is me being lifted up on a cross so that anyone who looks at me would live and anyone who does not look at me would die. And that's because, Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through me. Which some of you might be thinking, especially you folks that are trying to earn your salvation by your good behavior or pedigree or good works, you might think, this is ridiculous. The Apostle Paul said the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, imagine this scenario. You've got cancer. And you're at stage four. You're going to die. The whole ward that you're on has stage four cancer. And there's no cure to cancer. There's nothing that can be done. And the doctor comes around to the room. And he says, I came up with this idea. I grabbed a stick from a tree in a parking lot, and um, we, 
we took out a cancerous tumor out of one of our patients, and I have duct taped the cancerous tumor to this stick. And I've put it in the lobby. And whoever comes and looks at the cancerous tumor lives. And if you don't come look at it, you'll die. Now, you got a choice to make, right? Either this guy knows something that you don't know and is a genius, or he's insane. But there's really nothing in between, right? It's so ridiculous that it either is just a way for him to like numb your conscience so you don't feel like you're going to die, or it's true. So is the gospel. Like, to our human reasoning and human thinking, it is ridiculous. But what other solution is there to the problem that we have. None of us can earn our way out of our guilt. None of us can stop sinning. None of us can figure this thing out on our own. There is only one name under heaven by which you can be saved, and that's Jesus. And so the option is try to earn it, dole out your conscience, or look at the Savior and live. Here's the challenge that that is to all of us. It challenges our deep self-righteousness, tribalism, and pride. Because here's what it says. All of us are so bad that we cannot save ourselves. And it doesn't matter how much Bible knowledge that you have or what your pedigree is, or what race you are, or what tribe you're in, or what political positions you hold, or how much social justice that you've done, it doesn't matter. Because you've sinned, and you can't solve that problem on your own. And so God in love made a way where there was no way. And so we have the option to, I mean, think, think about that Israelite story. Those people being bit by snakes. Think about how many people died because they didn't have the humility to just go look at the snake. But instead, their loved ones, well-meaning, took them into a tent, started sucking the venom out of their arm, trying to save them on their own, which looks like the rational thing to do, and yet they died. And those with the humility to just go look, lived. Question. Are you trying to save yourself through your own effort? And is this the conversation that you needed to have this morning? Look and live. Look and live. Okay, so salvation is being born again, not born into. Salvation is for the world, not just a tribe. And thirdly, we see in the text that salvation brings honesty, not hiding. 
John 3, verses 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay, so the conversation takes another turn that we don't expect. Jesus has said that he didn't come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Then he transitions by saying, and this is the judgment. Why did he say that? He's saying that his intention in coming to the world is not condemnation, it is salvation. But because he comes bringing light, light will expose what is hidden in darkness and it will spotlight works of righteousness. So here's what Jesus coming into the world did for Nicodemus and does for all of us. It shows us what we're supposed to be like as human beings. You see, Jesus was completely unselfish. Jesus was kind and giving. He was completely connected to God vertically in relationship, and there was nothing blocking that relationship because he lived as a human being was intended to live, without sin. He lived with no shame and no fear of people. So he was able to say to others what needed to be said in love, to give both encouragement and words of warning. And Nicodemus is watching this as a teacher of Israel, and he realized that he was a counterfeit. That's a true teacher of Israel. Me? Not so much. And the spotlight of Jesus' life and his word was shining brightly into Nicodemus' life. And so, the word of God, down to this day, as it's taught faithfully, shines a spotlight onto our lives. And it shows us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is much darkness in us. And the judgment against us is that when that light starts to shine, we would rather dig our heels in and say, no, that's not true about me, than we would admit that we've been caught red-handed. And so what happens is the light gets shined on us, our deeds are exposed, and we rebel by running back into the darkness. And our running back into the darkness proves that we are not naturally people of the light. So if we were people of the light and the light 
shined on us, all that would be exposed is that we're good. There would be nothing to be afraid of. And so if the light came into the darkness and we were of the light, we would just join the light and be totally excited about that. Jesus is saying, light exposes us. That's the judgment. It's the truth of the life of Jesus. And so that's the, the question for all of us. Are we willing to say, I have deep darkness in me? Are we willing to own up and to stop running back into rebellion and self-justification and excuse-making and trying to cover up our darkness with supposed light. I think that's one of the biggest issues that us religious types have. Maybe the biggest problem that you have is not your sin this morning, it's your righteousness. And what you're doing is you're clinging on to those good things that you've done thinking that the good things somehow outweigh the bad things. And yet what Jesus clearly teaches in his word is that God's standard for our life is absolute perfection. It's flawlessness. Which of us is without sin? Now imagine that you're out camping and you brought a flashlight, but like most of us, how often do you really use a flashlight, right? And so you get out camping, you're with friends, and everybody is getting ready to go to bed and you realize like you're going to need the flashlight to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, right? So you're, you flip on your flashlight and you realize the battery's dead. And you're kind of like, dang it, I'm an idiot. Like, that's the one thing you need when you're camping. You've got to change out the battery. Now, at that moment, you have two options. Hide. I'm not going to tell anybody. It's kind of embarrassing. I don't want anybody in my tent to know. The other option is to own it. I got no battery for my flashlight, hope somebody gives you one so that you can walk in the light. What would keep you from asking for a battery? Pride. That's it. But we've all been there before, wanting to avoid being exposed so we don't own up and we end up in a worse situation overall. But if you ask somebody, they might say, yeah, sure, I can give you one. Here you go. Now it works. Great. Problem solved. Probably not that embarrassing anyway. Here's what Jesus is saying to you. Here's the offer. He's saying, listen, you got no light. Me? I got light. All you have to do is admit, I got nothing and I will give you everything that you need. See, Christianity is not us 
earning our salvation. It is us receiving our salvation from beginning to end. Okay, so there's a couple evidences to close out that you're a person who has genuinely received salvation from Jesus. John 3, 29 through 30. These are the words of John the Baptist. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Here's what he's saying. If you're at a wedding and you're in the wedding party, you rejoice in the groom. Everybody's been there before, right? You see the bride walking down the aisle, the groom's crying, and you're rejoicing like, that guy just hit the jackpot. What would be super inappropriate is if in that moment you tried to upstage the groom. Right? Can you imagine? Like, I want this to be my show. You run up on the stage and like give him a hip check, bounce him out of the way, talk about an awkward moment. Don't try it. Here's what John the Baptist is saying. He's saying true Christianity results in our greatest joy being the glory of the true groom, Jesus, instead of our own glory. We rejoice in him being the light of the world. Instead of us being the central focus of our lives, Jesus becomes the central focus of our lives. We're not looking to get likes. We're looking for other people to join us in the worship of King Jesus. The entire focus of our life change, the entire mission of our life change, which, by the way, is the most freeing possible reality. So many of us are crippled by so much anxiety living in the world that we live in because we are trying to get other people to bring us glory even though we know we don't deserve it. And so Jesus turns us away from that sort of self-focused introspection and wanting other people to worship us to worshiping Jesus. That's a miracle. That's salvation. Glorifying Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. The second thing is found in verse 36. Also, the words of John the Baptist. He says... Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have expected the verse to say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, when salvation truly comes, in your life, you are no longer on the throne of your life. See, to believe in Jesus is not just to have some vague intellectual assent that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross. Even the demons believe that. To truly believe in Jesus is to bow the knee to him. 
It is to trust him. It is to give him the keys of your life and to say, I am not my own. I was bought with a price. Therefore, I will glorify God in my body. There is this weird evangelical culture in America today that says you can believe in Jesus without obeying Jesus. To believe in Jesus without obeying Jesus is to not believe in Jesus. It is to be a non-Christian. And so if you find yourself in a place where you have always thought that you believed in Jesus, but that you know that you're not obeying Jesus, you need to believe in Jesus. And so I'm not going to end this message by giving you comfort. That's it. That's the end of the message. This conviction. All right? Because the Apostle Paul says that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in us both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. So my job, as far as I can tell, is to comfort those of you who are in the faith and to afflict those of you who are not. Okay, so let's pray. Jesus, thank you that... uh, you have these straight up conversations with those who grew up in the church, those who have never really wrestled with what true salvation is. And that you say hard things to us because you love us and you don't want anybody to perish. You don't want anybody to die in their sin but to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so, Jesus, I am asking that the wind of your spirit would blow through this room. That people would be convicted who walked into the room thinking that they were Christians but weren't and would repent of sin and bow the knee to you, Jesus, as Nicodemus did. And... uh, God, thank you that you love us enough to speak to us over and over again through your word. And God, I pray for all of us, uh, even those that are Christians, that we would be led to a deeper uh, repentance and faith in you, Jesus, as a result of this text. In Jesus' name.